TheFourWeekMBA.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. In today's session, uh, I had the pleasure to have with us Bo Barlingham, which is a contributing writer at Forbes, co-founder of the Small Giants Community, former editor-at-large for Inc. Magazine, and author of several books, among which I really loved and enjoyed, and enjoyed uh, Small Giants, which is going to be the topic of this conversation. Thanks a lot for joining me uh, for this conversation, Bo. Oh, it's very much my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I think, I think uh, you know, this conversation is going to be, uh, I, I will uh, personally enjoy it because uh, it's about a topic that is very easily forgotten in, in the uh, business world. But uh, what drove you actually to the research about uh, the topic of uh, what you call in the book uh, small giants in the first place? Well, I... Uh I had written an article about a very interesting company. I, when I was at Inc. Magazine, I'd written an article about this very interesting company in the United States called Zingerman's Community of Businesses. And Zingerman's had a very interesting story. It had uh, started out as a delicatessen uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan in uh, 1982. And their goal, the founders, there were two founders, and their goal was to create a delicatessen that was going to be great and unique, and that was going to be known the world over as being a great and unique delicatessen. And believe it or not, uh, 10 years later, they had really achieved that goal. I mean, they'd been written up. It was certainly very well known in the United States, and I think that uh, even when people listed sort of the great delicatessens of the world, Zingerman was uh, was on it. And so they, they came to a crossroads where they sort of uh, realized that if they were going to keep growing, they had to decide what they were going to do next. And they had a lot of options. I mean, there were already people lining up who wanted to create Zingerman's delicatessens in other cities around the uh, around the United States. And so they could have franchised easily or they could have raised private equity and started uh, Zingerman's uh, in, in, in other uh, towns, uh, college towns in particular, around the country. But they decided they didn't want to do that. They, 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 they said, look, when we started out, we wanted to create something that was great and unique. And by definition, when you start replicating something, it's no longer unique. And a lot of times it isn't even very good, let alone great. And so they 
they decided they had to do something else. And so they they met and they had some help with this. They had some brought somebody in to help them sort of think through where they wanted to go next. And uh, a couple of years later, they came out with their plan. And it was 1994, they came out with a plan called Zingerman's 2019. And it was their vision of what this company was going to look like 15 years in the future. And in it, they said, well, we're no longer going to be just a delicatessen. We're going to have a whole community of businesses. Uh, and all of them are going to be in the Ann Arbor area. All of them are going to be um, food related. Uh, and each of them is going to be great and unique in its own right. And so, for example, they could have a uh, a bakery. Um, they they actually, by the time I went to see them, and today I think they've got actually, uh, you know, by the time I went to see them in 2002, uh, they were already easily halfway toward their goal for 2009. And, uh, you know, they had a bakery, world-class bakery. Um, they had a, a terrific restaurant called Zingerman's Roadhouse. Uh, they had a, uh, a, a mail order company. They had a catering company. They had a coffee company called Zingerman's Coffee. They had a, uh, a gelato company called uh, uh, Zingerman's Creamery, made gelato and, uh, and cheese. Um, and they had a chocolate company. They, they, they had all these different companies and each of them, you know, aspired to be the greatest in the world at what they did. So they managed, uh, yep, so, sorry to interrupt. So they, they managed to actually uh, still grow the business, but uh, still keep uh, uh, unique uh, the, the each of those, uh, we can call them probably business units within, within a larger mission of having a world-class product in each category. That's absolutely correct. And uh, um, I was fascinated with it. I think the thing that really interested me most about this company was their ability to attract people from all over the United States to come and work there in Ann Arbor with them to create these businesses. I mean, they had people, uh, entrepreneurs who'd built successful companies who sold their businesses in order to come to... Uh, you know, come to Ann Arbor uh, to make cheese. Um, they had uh, people who had been partners in uh, big national accounting firms uh, who came to Zingerman's to uh, make bread. Um, you know, and, and often, you know, they gave up big salaries. They were making much more before, but they were so attracted to the, um, to, to what, Zingerman's was doing uh, that th they found it that this is where they really wanted to be. And uh, so I wound up writing an article about them for Inc. Magazine, and it, it was called The Coolest Small Company in America. And it was all about Zingerman's. And 
it got a very big response from our readers. And one of the people who responded to it was a publisher in New York um, who called me up and said that he thought that he was really interested in this article. And uh, he, he thought there might be a book there. And at first, I didn't really understand what he was talking about because I, I thought there might be a book for the founders of Zingerman's, but I didn't see how that would be a book for me. But I agreed to go meet him. And when we got together in New York, um, he explained that really what he was talking about was he wondered if there were other companies out there that had this opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, and that could have, in fact, grown to be uh, conceivably very big companies, but who had chosen not to because they had other, other goals that they considered more important than getting as big as possible, as fast as possible. Interesting, um, interesting. Yeah, I think, I think it's uh, extremely important because, you know, as, uh, uh, it's, there are some concepts in the business world like uh, scale, growth, and so on and so forth, which really dominate. So uh, it is almost like for, especially someone coming from, uh, I don't know, business school, uh, assuming that uh, that's the way you, 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 you make business. So you are supposed to scale at all costs. You are supposed to grow uh, at all costs. But then you have those companies which, which actually choose uh, not to, just because uh, not, uh, it's not like they can't. It's just that they choose not to. So what is, what is the definition of a, of a, a small giant, if there is any? Well, the, the short definition is, in fact, the uh, subtitle of the book which is it's about companies that choose to be great instead of big. And they have their own definition. Each company has its own definition of what it means by greatness. And, you know, every company is certainly, every founder or, or, or owner of a company is certainly entitled to um, determine his or her own uh, definition of what a great business is, but I, th these, all the companies that I wrote about, there were about, there were 14 of them in small giants, and um, they all had something very special going for them. It was like a, a kind of, uh, it was something you could feel if you spent time around them, or if you talked to their employees, or talked to their customers, it was a kind of electricity, or a power of attraction. Uh, it's what I call in the book mojo, um, you know, which is sort of the business equivalent of charisma. When a um, leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. When a business has mojo, you want to be associated with that business. You want to buy from it. You want to sell to it. You want to work for it. You know, you want to read about it. You want to wear its T-shirts and its caps. Uh, it's it's what you feel when you're really in the presence of a great business, and, um, and all it's, of these. Uh, it's not about money. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that that's uh, I think uh, the most important thing is that the mojo is is not uh, is not about money. No, it's really about the relationships that these businesses have with all the people who surround them. In other words, the relationships they have with their customers, obviously, and with their employees, also with their suppliers, and, and frankly, with the, their neighbors uh, and with the community at large. Um, 
and uh, I realized that you know the question was for me. I mean, I'd actually I'd been at Ink Magazine long enough, and I'd sort of seen companies you know from the early 1980s that really had this quality. I mean, I was there when Apple uh, uh, Apple was just getting founded, Microsoft was just getting founded. And uh, I got to know a lot of these companies when they were still pretty young, and they had that special quality. Most of them eventually lost it. But what fascinated me about these small giants is that they not only had it, but they were able to hold on to it. And mm -hmm. so the question, I, the question I had was, well, how are they able to do that? What are they doing? And uh, some of the companies that, uh, as as uh, as you mentioned, I mean, you you've seen companies like Apple uh, growing from 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 a small company to becoming a tech giant. I mean, uh, what are some examples of companies that as they grown, they they lost uh, their their mojo? I mean, is Apple one of those examples? Well, um, I had been uh, actually on the U.S. board of the Body Shop, um, and. I will say that when I first uh, became involved with the body shop, it had that sort of special quality, that mojo, but it, it did eventually lose it, um, you know, and uh, size was frankly uh, a factor. Uh, I, I was friends with and I knew uh, the founder, Anita Roddick, who's a wonderful person. And when Small Giants came out, she wrote to me, and said that she'd wished that I'd written it uh, when when she when, when she was starting the body shop because that was in fact the sort of company that she wanted to have. Uh, I mean, th there are lots of there are companies around um, that uh, you know have the um, have that special quality, but then they lose it and they lose it usually because they they grow and they can't handle there are things there's a, there are things you you have to give up when you grow um just as there are things that you can't have when you stay small uh, there's a company in the united states called whole foods whole foods when it was st just starting up it was a store in austin texas and it was a small giant, uh, but the the founder um, decided that he wanted a much bigger company and that would have more influence. And so he went public and raised a lot of capital and then went around and bought similar stores all over the uh, all over the United States and brought them, made them one company. And, uh, you know, there are certain things that you just can't do when you're a larger or you have to do for example when you have a large company like that you want the customer experience to be the same whether or not they uh whether they walk into one of your stores in austin texas or in san francisco or in boston or wherever and so you you don't really uh have that the same relationship to your customers that you have when you're small where you're unique and uh where you're the only one who has that quality 
Um, and, you know, that's just a fact of life. There are things you have to do differently. There are different ways in which you have to run companies uh, when, once you get bigger. Yeah. Um, you, you know, when you're, when, yep. you're, when, you're small, when you're small, you know, you can make exceptions for people. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. when you get larger, it's, it's dangerous to make exceptions because it becomes, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes something that uh, other people are, are going to want as well. And you can't really make personal exceptions anymore. Yeah, I agree. And you mentioned uh, the Whole Foods case, which uh, which in 2017 was bought uh, by Amazon, so it became Correct. part of uh, even uh, even a larger uh, organization. And um, th there is there is one thing though in uh, in, in some cases in the business world uh, we think of uh, scaling up as a way also as a defense uh, mechanism. So you say. I'll scale up, so I'll avoid, I'll avoid uh, the competitors who take on my, my, my piece of the cake. So in, in the case of the small giants, I mean, how they can actually defend their profitability or sort of their market, even if it is a small market or even if it is a small uh, customer base? Well, I will say this is that all of these companies that I wrote about were very profitable. That was one of the criteria that I used to choose them was I wanted companies that had been profitable uh, for an extended period of time. And, uh, you know, so they'd been through the ups and downs of business. They'd been through recessions and so forth, and, and yet had managed to maintain their profitability. Uh, you know, how you do that, whether you're a big company or a little company, is, uh, well, that that's a whole other uh, discussion we could have about um you know but are, are you keeping yeah of course but there there are probably there are probably like two three elements that a small giants is going to have that a big company or a if i'm thinking about the a tech giant might have which as you also mentioned in the book i think is uh, the connection with the with the local community and the fact that in any case as a small giant, you can keep this connection, or at least even if you have a, a, you know, a smaller set of customers, you can actually um, you know, customize the experience or actually uh, really uh, develop a, a, a deep relationship with those customers that a tech giant might uh, never be able to do so, at least at this stage in time. Well, w whether they, that's true. It's, it's basically the relationships they're able to maintain their profitability. The small giants are able to maintain their profitability because of these extraordinary relationships that they have with their customers uh, and their employees. In other words, and, and you know, that obviously has uh, an important uh, effect in the market because uh, people talk about the company. People, people are as passionate about if, if if your customers are as passionate about your company as you are, um, what are they going to do? They're going to talk to other people and say, you know, you've really got to know this company, you've really got to buy from this company. And, you know, that allows, um, you know, when you have that kind of demand for your product or your service, you know, that allows you to, um, uh, it, that allows you to maintain and, in fact, increase your profit margins, because 
in effect, profit is sort of the applause that customers give to you. It's uh, it's it's they're basically saying that they want your uh, your product or your service so much that they're willing to pay you more than it actually took you to create it. And uh, uh, when you have that sort of thing, you you know that's how you achieve profitability. And when you have small companies, small giants. Now understand some of these small giants are actually uh you know they're not so small anymore um you know there's one that i wrote about called cliff bar which was uh it's a sort of an energy uh bar company and uh they were very small or relatively small when i wrote about them uh, they're like probably 10 or 15 times bigger today than they were back then but um you know, when you ha have that sort of special relationship with your customers, you're able to, uh, you know, you're able to increase your profit margins or maintain your profit margins, and uh, you, you're growing by word of mouth. I mean, I will say this is that all the small giants I wrote about were still growing. They, yep. they just weren't growing as fast as possible. And the, the, the Cliff Bar uh, case that you just mentioned, I think it's, uh, it's one of the most interesting. And in the book, you also mentioned that uh, the, 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 the founder, one of the founders had actually the chance to walk away with, uh, with a lot of cash, with a lot of money, because he was about to exit the company. But then uh, he right. changed uh, his mind. I mean, what, what were some of the motivations for actually not uh, doing an exit on a, on a, on a company? Uh, that you fear is going to take over, is going to be taken over by the competition? Well, I mean, each, each instance is a little different. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at Cliff Bar, uh, it was a case where their two biggest competitors had already been acquired by Kraft and Nestle. And so they and they they received an offer from Quaker um uh, to buy Cliff Bar for um you know 150 million dollars which is a lot of money <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh at the last minute uh the, the 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 founder Gary Erickson uh really began to feel very bad because he had found out that in fact Quaker was going to uh, move the company uh, to the Midwest, which meant all of his employees were going to lose their jobs, and uh, that he wasn't going to have any involvement with it after the sale, which means that he, he couldn't actually protect the brand. Um, right. And th those were two reasons why he was going to actually consider the sale in the first place. Um, but uh, and he decided at the last minute, literally the last minute. I mean, the papers were drawn. Um, he was sort of standing with his partner in an office waiting uh, for the lawyers to pick him up, to take them, to sign all the papers for the sale. And, and literally, he, 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 he got so um, nervous and, and anxious about what he was about to do that he decided he wanted to walk around the the block. He needed fresh air. 
Um, so he told his partner, I've got to go out for a walk. Uh, I'll just walk around. I'll be back. Um, and as he, and when he went out to walk around the block, he got out there and realizing what he was about to do, he, he felt so horrible that he was actually in tears. Uh, and then he realized, gee, I haven't signed anything yet. And suddenly he felt a lot better. So he walked back to the office and basically told his partner, send them home. I'm not going to do this deal. Now, that's, I wouldn't say that that's typical. I've, I, I, it does happen, but it usually it's, uh, it's something that happens late in the product. I write about uh, Anchor Brewing, which was a beer company uh, that actually sort of started. Craft brewing is very, very big in the United States. And um, uh, Anchor Brewing was really one of the first craft brewers. It was probably the first craft brewer. And uh, it was so popular what they were doing that they couldn't keep up with the demand. They, they were actually having to ration customers and say, well, we can't, you know, we can't meet all of the, uh, we can't give you all of the uh, craft brew that you want. And, uh, and this was very upsetting, obviously, to the owner. And uh, he began to consider uh, building another brewery. And in order to do that, he needed to raise capital. So he was going to go public, um, do what's called a direct offering here. Um, but again, late in the process, he began to think about how his life was going to change if he became a public company. and. He got his, his team together at Anchor Brewing, and they all talked about how things would change if they went through with this plan. And they all agreed that they wouldn't like the company as much, that, that it wouldn't be as special to them uh, as it was. And so they decided that they would not uh, go ahead with that. And he called up the, uh, the, the people who he was going to do the deal with and, and said, uh, I'm I'm out. I'm not going to do this. We're not going to build a new brewery. And, and uh, um, you know, but it, it was again that realization. The question is, when do you get the realization that the life you're going to have after you make a certain choice to grow fast is not going to be the life you want? And the company that you create is not going to be the type of company that you want. Yep, so it's about uh, your company losing the essence that you were trying to instill. And also I think it's very important because uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, it's not uh, that you lose control on your vision when you go to an, app, an IPO, which is for larger companies, but also in the startup world, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a, this dilemma on whether, for instance, to take uh, uh, outside uh, capital, which is called the venture capital, when of course you're growing your company, and yeah, one one of the drawbacks for sure is the fact that uh, you lose control, or you might lose control over your vision, or either in any case, either you make sure that whoever is uh, putting the outside uh, funding is in line with your vision and is going to be so in the long run. Otherwise, of course, the risk is that you're going to be building up a company that uh, you're not able to identify with anymore. So I think that's a, a critical point. And, and I guess it's one of the reasons 
That, that's a that's a critical point that you're making. That it does have to do with the fact that um, you know that, for example, when you do take in venture capital or private equity, that you're basically uh, teaming up with people who really have to have growth. I mean, their customers are their investors, and they yep. have to deliver a return to those investors. So. And, and and you have to, as the uh, owner of a company that is considering, I mean, obviously, you know, having the extra capital does allow you to do things that you can't do if you don't have it. But uh, you do give up some control because you're basically saying, yes, okay, we're going to make this a good investment for you. And making a good investment uh, often means being forced to grow much faster and get much bigger. Um, yeah. and, and I'd, uh, I'd love to highlight also that in some cases that might also be a sort of uh, dangerous because if you force growth, of course, you might break what you built in the, in the first place. Um, that's, that's true. Very, very good observation. Yeah, so I, I think this is another uh, thing to take into account. So uh, that's that's what I try to to evaluate, especially when uh, you know when when I, I write something for for the blog, I try to look at the the the, um, the consequences also of the decisions that you take, for instance, as a founder. And um, of course, again, as I said, uh, it's very important that as a founder, if you want to keep your vision as um, as uh, authentic as possible, of course, you want to keep also control on the on the on the on where the organization uh, is going uh, in the in the long in the long run. So, uh, as for uh, the mm, business that uh, you've been looking at uh, throughout your research, have you noticed? I mean, any um, particular. Um, I mean, uh, we or like business model that is different, like a small giant, our small giant business model may di be different from any other company or is it really any small giant as uh, its own specifics and there is no way for us to uh, put any kind of uh, generalization? Well, th there are certain uh, management practices that are very common to a lot of the small giants. For example, one of the books that I wrote uh, before uh, Small Giants was called The Great Game of Business. And I did it in, uh, uh, I had a co-author uh, who was a, the CEO of a very interesting company in Springfield, Missouri. And basically that book was about the whole idea of building a company in a way that everybody in the company, I'm talking about people down on the shop floor, the welders and, you know, everybody who worked in the company knew all, understood all the finances of the company and shared all the finances. It's what we know in the United States now as open book management. Uh, but the great game of business has become very, very popular. I mean, there's a conference every year. In, in September in Dallas, um, where, uh, you know, seven or 800 people from around the country get together to talk about their experiences and to learn things. And, uh, you know, there, there are, there are certainly hundreds, if not thousands of companies 
that are practicing this open book management. And that is particularly something that is very widely practiced by small giants. Um, you know, th there are other, there are other uh, practices that I think are important. I mean, Zingerman's um, developed a whole methodology for creating a vision of the kind of company you want to have in the future. I mean, that's what they did. I mean, they did it in 1994, and then they had to do it again in 2009 because they got there. So they had a new vision to take them to 2020. And now they're working on the vision that's going to take them to 2030. Um, but th they have a methodology for doing this that, again, I highly recommend and that I think a lot of uh, other small giants have adopted. Um, it, there's not a one particular model that you have to follow in order to be a small giant, but there are there are certain techniques um, that that have been developed by these companies that they share with other companies and that have become very very popular among small giants. Interesting, really interesting. I'd uh, love to really go in depth into this topic, but uh, the the time is also running short. And I'm, I'm I'd love to have you again for a future uh, in in the, in the coming weeks or months to have another conversation on the, this uh, specific topic. And uh, really want to uh, thank you for 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 joining me for for this conversation. And uh, thanks for writing the book, Small Giants, which I suggest uh, to anyone in business because I think it's a great, uh, um, really, uh, book to, to, to really have a different perspective on the business uh, world that we see usually uh, portrayed, which is not the only way to do business. So uh, thank you very much, both for joining me for this conversation. Well, thank you. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it, the book has been translated into several languages, but it uh, it has not been translated into Italian, um, and it has been not been translated into German either. So you really uh, or French. Well, maybe actually, there the right, uh, might be the right timing to do it. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, in any case, the, the, most of the four-week MBA audience is also in the U.S., so it's, uh, it's good that uh, you know, they, they're going to have the chance to read it. And I agree that the version in Italian and also in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Germany will be really worth it. So, yeah. Thank you again for joining me for this conversation, Bo. Pleasure having you. My pleasure. Thank You've you. been Thank listening you. to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.